Hi, I'm Graham Abbott, and this is another Classical Uncovered podcast presented by the Melbourne Recital Centre. We're in the midst of a series of podcasts which ask the question, what's so great about... And so far, we've explored what I think is so great about Ludwig van Beethoven and Johann Sebastian Bach. This time, we're looking at a composer whose life spans a good deal of the 19th century and whose name also appears regularly on concert programs, Johannes Brahms. It used to be fashionable when teaching children about music history to refer to the three Bs, meaning Bach, Beethoven and Brahms. These three composers have traditionally been held up as the core of the classical canon, the three German-speaking composers whose music takes us from the start of the 18th century to the end of the 19th, and certainly their regular appearance in concert programs and on recordings would tend to support this view. But it's a neat cop-out on many levels. For a start, it implies that all other composers are inferior to, or at least less important than, the three Bs. And it also implies that knowing their music would pretty well suffice for an understanding of classical music in general. More dangerously, it tends to lock out any music before or after them, entrenching a very conservative and narrow view of the art form. It especially locks out any consideration of classical music as a contemporary art form, which it most certainly is, with living composers and new works. So, in starting this series of Classical Uncovered with the three Bs, I want to stress that I'm aiming to simply lay a familiar foundation, to provide a starting point for going further, as resources allow. I love the music of the three Bs, but there's so much more out there for us to explore. Johannes Brahms was born in 1833, six years after the death of Beethoven. He lived almost to the end of the century. He died in 1897. Unlike both of the other Bs, I can't think of anything about Brahms which might be regarded as his superpower. There isn't anything heroic in his life on a par with Beethoven triumphing over deafness, for example, but he is known to the world at large, even if it is indirectly, through one or two familiar tunes. Brahms's fifth Hungarian dance is probably one tune most people will have at least heard, even if they don't know its title or the name of its composer. I probably first heard it, like most people my age, in one of the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons, which were broadcast regularly on TV during my childhood. Perhaps the first Hungarian dance would also be slightly familiar. But Brahms's most famous tune is probably the piece known in English as Brahms's Lullaby. Brahms actually did write the melody, although in its original form, Wiegenlied, or Cradle Song, Opus 49, Number 4, it's one of his solo songs with a subtle yet sublime piano accompaniment. So, he has a few tunes people might recognise, and no superpower. What's so great about Brahms, then? Well, before I talk about that, I'll let you in on a secret. A lot of people who love classical music find Brahms heavy going. Many actually don't like his music at all. That may surprise you. Isn't everyone who's into classical music supposed to love the big names? Well, no. It's like any art. There's so much of it that you can't be expected to love or even like everything. 
Just because you go to an art gallery, it doesn't mean you'll love everything you see. Some things will bore you or not mean anything to you, and you may choose to just give them a miss. Other things might intrigue you, yet others might stun you. It's all allowed, and music is no different. The problem many people, even music lovers, have with Brahms is one of the things I feel is so great about him, and that's his complexity. I talked about complexity in the podcast about Bach and how that revealed an extraordinary musical intellect. Brahms's complexity is different to Bach's. Some might call it a density, a thickness of texture, which to the uninitiated can seem overwhelming. There's just so much going on, even in works for two or three instruments, like the violin sonatas or the piano trios. Brahms requires special listening, just as Bach does, but it's a different sort of listening. Brahms can overwhelm in the same way Shakespeare can. In fact, a good analogy for Brahms to my way of thinking is a large garden, like a botanical garden with so many different things to see and experience, and no single path to follow. You may choose to enjoy a grove of trees, or beds of flowers, or open lawns, but all of these things combined are what make up the gardens as a whole. And central to Brahms's writing is the way he writes for the piano. Brahms was a gifted pianist and wrote enormously complex and difficult music for his own instrument. It's a challenge for pianists today, but it's important to remember that Brahms himself performed his own music, so he wasn't just composing theoretically for the piano. He knew it could work. To those of us who are not pianists, and I'm definitely not, Brahms's piano writing can sound dense and complicated, and therein lies its magic, I think. Viewed simply from a listener's standpoint, the piano music is sometimes a fascinating puzzle. The hands can be so busy and move so rapidly all over the keyboard, it's sometimes hard to work out where the melody is. Sometimes it's hard to tell if there is a melody. But take a step back, orally speaking, and allow your ear to get caught up in it, and you'll often find that a melody presents itself, and not always in the highest notes. Sometimes it's hidden in the middle or even in the bass. And if the piano is working with other instruments, such as in the sonatas and chamber music, then it may at times be playing a supporting role for the other parts. There's light and shade, or rather, the spotlight falls on different parts of the texture at different times. The whole, like one of J.M.W. Turner's paintings, can seem at first glance to be confusing, but on further exploration, we find ourselves discovering fascinating details that may have initially eluded us. As I said, it's complex, but a very different sort of complexity to Bach, or indeed Beethoven. So, weirdly enough, one of the things which I think make Brahms great is one of the things people find difficult about him, his complexity. But what else? Well, for someone like me, who's a bit of a music history nerd, okay, a lot of a music history nerd, something which sets Brahms apart from almost all his contemporaries is his ability to look backwards and to incorporate ideas from past times into his music. 
This might not seem strange to us, given that classical music today, by definition, is obsessed with music of the past, and sometimes the very distant past, but it was not always so. It wasn't really until the early to mid-20th century that classical musicians on the whole began preferring music of the past to music of their own times. I won't attempt to go into here why this was so, it's a huge topic, but suffice to say that in the 19th century, and certainly before, what people wanted to hear was new music, the latest creations. In, say, the 17th or 18th centuries, ancient music was music more than about 40 years old. How times have changed. Brahms, most unusually, was very well acquainted with music of the past, and not just music of the earlier 19th century. Most European musicians in the 19th century, and especially German-speaking musicians, were acquainted with Beethoven and Schubert, and, to go into the late 18th century, probably Mozart and Haydn to some extent. But during the 19th century, the first attempts were made to systematically publish the complete works of earlier composers. The complete works of Bach, Mozart and Handel were all published in collected editions during Brahms's lifetime. There were many others, and there were collections of music from even earlier, too. Music by 17th century composers, like the German master of sacred music Heinrich Schütz, began to be widely available for the first time, as were the masses of Palestrina and his contemporaries from the 16th century. And this music was studied by some of the biggest names in the business. Beethoven took delivery of some volumes of Handel during his final illness, and Rossini subscribed to the complete works of Bach, something evident in his use of counterpoint in his late mass setting of 1863. For his part, Brahms certainly not only studied and knew a great deal of music from earlier times, but incorporated ideas from it in his own works. The influence of Schütz, for example, is clearly evident in some of Brahms's motets for unaccompanied chorus. In fact, some passages seem to be written in an attempt to suggest the earlier composer's style. And towards the end of his life, Brahms wrote a series of organ chorale preludes, which, while being most definitely in a late Romantic style, clearly owe their existence to a deep understanding of Bach's own chorale preludes. Bach's shadow hangs over another famous part of Brahms's music too, namely the final movement of his fourth and last symphony. In taking a bass line of six notes from Bach's cantata number 150 and adding one more note to the sequence, Brahms not only pays homage to the earlier composer, but casts the entire symphonic finale in a series of some 30 variations on this bass line. This use of what was known in the Baroque as a ground bass was virtually unique in the history of the 19th century symphony. But Brahms does it in such a way so as to make the music sound completely of its time. This is no mere pastiche of early music. So it seems to me that another of Brahms's claims to greatness is the sheer historical sweep of his inspirations and the way in which his references to the past can still sound completely modern for him. 
Of course, he wasn't the only composer to make such references. His friend and mentor Robert Schumann was another. But Brahms's superlative technique in blending old and new is really breathtaking. And this brings me to the final aspect of Brahms's claim to greatness that I want to explore here. This is the fact, perceived by the musical world during his lifetime and not just by posterity, that he really was the continuation of the classical tradition in the Romantic era. It's often said that Brahms's first symphony was dubbed Beethoven's Tenth when it was performed, and to some extent this is not an inaccurate suggestion. Brahms clearly felt the weight of history on his shoulders in finally getting around to writing a symphony, and the fact that he took 14 years over the task says much. The first symphony, premiered in 1876, has much in it which superficially makes us think of Beethoven's Ninth, first performed more than half a century earlier. Like the earlier work, it moves from darkness to light, not an uncommon progression in large-scale musical works, but one reinforced in Brahms's symphony by the use of a hymn-like tune in the last movement, which made many think of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. Even though Brahms's symphony is purely instrumental, it doesn't use singers like Beethoven's Ninth does. But in drawing the strong connection between Brahms and Beethoven, many omit another very strong shadow hanging over the later composer, namely that of Franz Schubert. Schubert's final symphony dates from the mid-1820s, but it didn't receive its first performance until 1839, 11 years after Schubert's tragically early death. And in Brahms's other music, most notably the chamber music, Schubert's tuneful lyricism seems to be as much of an inspiration as does Beethoven's muscular power. Brahms manages to capture both, evoking memories of the earlier composer, but never inviting comparisons or charges of slavish plagiarism. And so, to suggest some works which might introduce you to these various aspects of Brahms's greatness. For some ravishing choral music which draws its inspiration from the Baroque, I can't go past the three motets of Brahms's Opus 109. They have the daunting German title of Fest und Gedenksprüche, Festival and Commemoration Sentences, but a search for Opus 109 should find them. I particularly love the middle motet, Wenn ein starker Gewappnete. For an introduction to the wonders of Brahms's piano music, have a look at the Seven Fantasies or Fantasias, Opus 116. They're quite late works, but each is only a few minutes long and provides a brilliant snapshot of the pianist-composer at work. Brahms's greatest contributions to Western art are generally held to be his chamber music and orchestral works, and that's difficult to disagree with. In the chamber works, have a listen to the horn trio, Opus 40. The rather unusual combination of horn, violin and piano is handled superbly by the composer, who wrote the work in his early 30s. As for the orchestral works, the four symphonies are of course required listening, but if you feel daunted by that, listen to the variations on a theme by Haydn. This exists in a version for two pianos as well as for orchestra. The orchestral version is a wonderful kaleidoscope of moods and instrumental colours. It also ends with a brilliant set of variations on a recurring bass line, 
which seems to point the way to the later finale of the Fourth Symphony. And I have to mention a German Requiem, one of my very favourite Brahms works, and one of the most beautiful choral works ever. I hope this all-too-brief survey of what I think are Brahms's claims to greatness has inspired you to delve further into his remarkable, all-embracing music. As usual, there's so much to get into. My thanks to Duncan Yardley for the technical production of Classical Uncovered. I'm Graham Abbott, and I hope you can join me for the next instalment in our journey through musical greatness.